Remain standing. Let's thank the Lord for what we've already experienced this morning. Lord, we're grateful for this time of worship. May we now uh, turn our attention to the truths of your word and be encouraged and uh, be taught in a practical way that we can uh, put this into practice in our lives this, this very day. Thank you for giving us the strength and the health to be here this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It's a delight to be back with you. Uh, as uh, was mentioned, I am a, uh, a, a professional guest. I travel. I'm in a different church every Sunday. And uh, because I'm a guest, it wouldn't be summer without a couple weekends in Phoenix and Las Vegas and I'll be in Palm Springs in a couple weeks, just like it wouldn't be January without Bemidji, Minnesota. It seems like pastors aren't as dumb as they look. They know when to get out of town and bring in the uh, B team. But uh, it really is a treat to be here. Um, I, I love Scottsdale Bible. I love being here. I live over in Southern California. I live in Newport Beach. So, so thank you for getting me out of that uh, horrific Newport <laughs> Beach climate. Uh, to be here with you today. Uh, I, w- I Seriously, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. Um, I want to begin with a story. This story was told to me by a fellow student uh, back when I was in seminary, and I'll, I'll give you all the detail because it'll make more sense when we tell the story. Uh, I, I was in Dallas Seminary uh, back in the 1970s. And I say that because um, the story I'm about to tell you, uh, as we get deeper into it, it's going to sound increasingly more and more suspicious, like this really couldn't have happened, could it? But I want to remind you, this was a seminarian that told me this story, and in Dallas, a very reputable school. But this story has to do with what uh, many people know as the quintessential proverbial little country church. Think Scottsdale Bible, and they'll go all the way to the opposite. Okay, in a very small town, little congregation, uh, oftentimes in a little country church, uh, there wasn't even enough money to hire anybody to be on staff. The the preacher was um, a, a mailman, and he didn't deliver mail on Sunday, so he was available to be the preacher. And the choir director was a plumber, and he had a we don't fix toilets on Sunday policy. So he was available to lead the choir. Now, the conventional wisdom says when you have an all-volunteer staff that you often suffer in quality, and that's most often the case. But in this particular church, especially the music, the choir director slash plumber was amazing. And he had this choir that he put together. And twice a year, Christmas season and Easter season, he would put on a concert that was absolutely incredible. And so the story goes that a rich city slicker moved to the country and started attending this church and became very interested in the growth of the church and what was going on. So one day he took the choir director slash plumber aside and said, I'm going to make a large financial contribution to the church, and I want it to go specifically to you, and I really want it to go specifically to the next concert that we do. It was this time of year, so it'll be the Christmas concert. And sometimes people make, you know, financial gifts and they say, do what you want with it. Other times people have kind of an agenda of where they want it to go. This was the latter. This guy had it all figured out. He said, look, I know how we're going to spend all this money. First of all, the choir sounds great, but the piano and the organ behind it, oh boy, they need help. So listen, I have connections. 
I am going to hire for the night of the Christmas concert a full orchestra. We're going to do a whole studio musician, full union scale gig. We're going to put an orchestra underneath this choir so that it sounds absolutely fabulous. He said, I got another idea. I love the way the choir sounds, but there's always a scary part in every song where one person steps forward to sing the solo. We've got no soloists in this choir. So fortunately, I know a woman up in New York City. She's an operatically trained soprano. Going to fly her in for the night. She's going to do all the solo work. And he said, I got one last thing. He said, you know, this is going to be so big, it won't fit in the little country church. So I am going down to the nearest big city. I'm going to rent for the evening a brand new state-of-the-art concert hall. We're going to trust that God is going to fill the place. It's going to be the mother of all Christmas concerts. Well, the choir director slash plumber is excited and also a bundle of nerves. So he spends the whole fall directing his volunteer choir. And they're ready for the night of the Christmas concert. So it's the night before. And they drive down to the big city for the dress rehearsal. Now, I didn't grow up in a little country church, but I grew up in a little church. And so I have a vision of how this looked as they got into the church bus. Think school bus circa 1918, all right? And the church bus, the rickety thing, is driving down to the big city. And the choir walks in, and they're amazed at this state-of-the-art concert hall. Now, this is why I told you they told me this story back in the 70s. State-of-the-art back then included what a lot of our schools have now, but it was the whole idea of you had this massive stage, but if you had an orchestra, the front part of the stage could be lowered to create an orchestra pit. And they actually got in as the pit was lowering, and the studio musicians came in, and it just went great. The whole dress rehearsal was fabulous. There was only one unknown, and that was the soprano. When she signed her contract, she informed the people, I don't need to rehearse with you. I just show up and wow them. All right? So we fast forward 24 hours. It's the night of the Christmas concert. Our poor choir director slash plumber, he's nervously pulling the curtain back. He doesn't know whether to hope for a full house or an empty house. And it's absolutely packed. And he's a bundle of nerves and he's telling the choir, just stay with me and watch for the downbeat. And he's trembling like a man with a palsy. And it's just amazing. So the curtain opens, the orchestra, it just sounds awesome. It's the best just like they rehearsed, absolutely flawless. Finally, it comes time for the soprano soloist, and she kind of boldly marches to the center of the stage and assumes the operatic singing position. And, you know, she's operatically trained. When my kids were younger, they would say, Dad, that meant her voice has bumps. You know, that kind of thing. Professionally trained, she's not going to sing Jingle Bell Rock or Rock Around the Christmas Tree. She's got a classical piece that she's doing. And she takes off, you know, she's doing all the deal. And she comes to the place that those of us that don't know a lot about music, we would call the chorus. And the first note of the chorus, if you ever took two or three piano lessons, was a note with a bird's eye over it, a fermata. You know what that means? Hit it and hold it as long as you want. And so she gears up for the first note of the chorus and she lets it rip. And she's holding this thing forever. Unbeknownst to anybody in the concert hall, the pitch of that note activated the elevator that controlled the orchestra pit. 
And so as she's singing this song, she hits that note, and all of a sudden, the orchestra's coming up to her level. Nobody's put it together. She holds the note as long as she can. Then she finally comes off. Deactivates the elevator. Now, if that was the story, I could just about believe it. But according to my friend, the seminarian, this song had five verses. He says, by the fifth chorus, all decorum had been lost. You know, the fiddlers are waving to mom on the way up and the way down. You know, it was just absolutely lost, a ruined Christmas concert. I don't know if that story's true, but I got to tell you, it's the best I've ever heard to illustrate the phrase, a power that you know not of. I mean, think of it. That woman, by her very voice, could lift an entire platform of adults. And let's get the bad pun out of the way right away. And could send that group right down to the pit. And my contention this morning, folks, whether you ever had a voice lesson or not, whether you can't even carry a tune in the bucket, you and I have the absolute same power in our voice. Our words have the power to lift people up. There's an actual New Testament term for this. It's the term edify, to build up or to lift up. And we also have the power to send people down to the pit. And I would like to suggest today that you and I want to be people that are lifting others up. We want to talk about how to be an encourager. I mean, if you're in such a bad place in your life that you can't even muster the energy to do that, let me ask you to think about it another way. Who would you want surrounding you right now? Do you want people in your life that are constantly putting you down and sending you deeper and deeper into a pit? Or do you want people who are lifting you up and building you up and encouraging you? There's an entire New Testament book, I believe, that's dedicated to this whole concept of encouragement. It's the book of 1 Thessalonians. And if you would uh, open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you will see that unlike the way we write letters today, uh, Paul uh, addresses and uh, acknowledges his uh, writing right out of the gate, chapter 1, verse 1. And then in chapter 1, verse 2, he talks about the recipients of this letter, a church that's in a town called Thessalonica. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Now, you're of an exceptionally well-taught church. I don't mean to uh, insult anyone's intelligence, but if you are on the newer side of things of the Bible, let me give you just a, a quick uh, crash course here in some things about Bible that are very significant. First of all, especially in the New Testament, every Bible book has a purpose for it being in there. There's a reason why each of these books were written. In the New Testament, most of the books are letters. There's a reason why these letters are written. Paul acknowledges in the very beginning of this letter, this is something that I want you to see because you are doing good things, faith, love, hope, and I'm asking you to keep it up. Keep up the good work. 
And so uh, 1 Thessalonians is a very significant book. Now, if I'm correct in my calendar, uh, Tom Schrader was here last weekend, and I believe he was in 2 Timothy. And we kind of go the full spectrum of Timothy uh, of Paul's writings in that we know for sure 2 Timothy was the last book that Paul wrote that's recorded in the Bible. I believe that 1 Thessalonians is the first book that Paul wrote. It's either 1 Thessalonians or Galatians or they both came out around the same time. But you've got the full extent of Paul's literary career as a writer of Scripture in those two books. In this early book, he is writing to the Thessalonians and saying, you're doing a good job, keep it up. Now again, if you understand that, you understand the book better. In contrast, let's show one as an example. Paul wrote to the church of Corinth, the the book of 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians is all about, I'm hearing all this bad stuff. Let me answer these questions. Let me try to solve these controversies. Let me try to get, come on, you guys got to get it together. I mean, if you were to use a, a hand symbol for 1 Corinthians, it's kind of a finger wagging. Like, come on, you Corinthians, you know better than that. Get your act together. When we see the book of 1 Thessalonians, if we were to use a hand symbol, it would be a group hug. Oh, you're doing great. Keep up the good work. Paul is encouraging them in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so if you would now go to the end of the book, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, you see that there is a verse in verse 11 that says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Encourage one another. Paul is saying, hey, that's a good thing. Build up one another. There's the elevator coming out of the pit. And he says, just as you also are doing. Keep it up. Now, there's kind of a a twofold angle to what I'm going to try to say today. Because I not only want you to see that Paul is saying, be an encourager. But I want you to see also how he provides encouragement to the Thessalonians as he's writing. It's kind of like this. I've already mentioned it. I've grown up in church. I've heard dozens of messages on encouragement. You're going to be an encourager, right? And and we go home and we realize, I don't know really how to do that. I mean, it, it reminds me, I'm a big sports fan. I love the NFL. I've spoken to 26 NFL teams. It's like an NFL huddle. Okay, this next play, we score. Break. And we go up to the line of scrimmage and we realize... Uh, are we running the ball? Are we passing the ball? Is there a kicker on the field? We don't know how to do it. We know the goal. We want to score, but we don't know how to get there. It's like the same thing. Let's have a huddle. All right, we're going to encourage. Ready? Encourage. Yeah. How do I do that? I do not know. (laughs) So it's not enough just to say, come on, people, encourage. Let's find out from Paul some very practical ways how to be an encourager. Verse 11, one more time, says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. We encourage, we build up, keep up the good work. I've neglected the most important word in the verse. It's the first word in the verse. It's the word therefore. Whenever you see a therefore, you always stop to see what it's there for. All right? (laughs) And it's always in relation to what we have just said. It's kind of New Testament for our current cliche, the bottom line. 
If I'm going to summarize this, the bottom line, well, let's see what he's saying to where he can get to a place where he's saying, therefore, encourage one another. Now, another really helpful thing about studying the Bible on your own is the Bible's in paragraph form, just like books or letters. And so when he says a therefore, it's probably in relation to all that he said in that preceding paragraph. Now, the whole paragraph is an actual long one in Scripture. It actually starts up in verse 1. So we have an 11-verse paragraph of which 10 verses are expounded upon. Then he gets to therefore. Uh, Time will not permit to go through all 11. So let me jump into the middle because that gets me to the heart that I really want to refer to. And we'll make reference to the rest of it before we're through here. Let's look at verse 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, I'm curious. Somebody yell it. When you hear those phrases, the breastplate of faith and love, and the helmet, the hope of salvation, what other passage does it remind you of? Ephesians 6, exactly, where Paul writes about what he calls the full armor of God. Now, many of us are communicators. We're either speakers or we're writers. I mean, this, this is classic writer's uh, inspiration. If this is the first book he wrote, he writes about two pieces of armor, and maybe he made a little note in his writer's journal. You know, some other time when I'm talking to a church, I would like to expand on this. We'll get all kinds of pieces of armor uh, because this is such a great illustration. And it is. The full armor of God, or in this case, the two pieces of armor of God, are rich in what they symbolize. Now, as a kid growing up in church, we used to love the story of the full armor of God. I grew up in a little church. I remember a very specific time in, in my life, going to Sunday school in fifth grade. The fifth grade boys' Sunday school class. I'll say that again slower so you can let that sink in. Fifth grade boys' Sunday school class. That's code for there's not an adult in their right mind that would sign up to teach this crew. And we were especially bad, all right? And they finally got someone, God bless her, a 98-year-old blue-haired woman. And, and she was great. And she, understood, she knew how to motivate us. It was a wonderful Christian idea called bribery, all right? And there was, a, uh, there was a technique back then, and I'm gonna, I see some people my age, you're going to have to help me here because we're going back to the dinosaurs now. But there used to be this deal, pre-computers and all this kind of stuff, that was all around a piece of felt that was on an easel. And they had these little pictures that had something on the back of them, kind of prehistoric Velcro, and it would stick to the felt. It was called the flannel board or the flannel graph. Who's old enough to remember that? All right. Oh, yeah. I got a lot of my peeps here. God bless America. All right. I'm coming back next week. This is great. Well, she used to have one for the full armor of God. She had all these pieces of armor, and we used to be like, yeah, full armor of God. Get that sword. Die, Satan. Die. She used it as bribery if we were misbehaving. You boys back there, you stop eating the paste. (laughs) Or no full armor of God flannel graph. And we're like, whoa, she's serious, man. Let's straighten up. Bless her heart. One other thing, I mean, no disrespect, but she had a really bad case of arthritis too. So she would point at us, but her finger would always point (laughs) a different way. This really threw me as a fifth grader. She'd be looking right at me. You boys, and we'd always look over there. There's no boys over there. You boy. Anyway. 
I'm digressing. Anyway, getting back to the point here. The point was, I was so immersed in the full armor of God, I thought it was like the best thing going. And when I became an adult, and, and part of my studies took me into studying education and studying teaching and how to be an effective teacher, I realized that this was illustrating one of the prime concepts of how a teacher can teach. And here it is. The best way to teach an abstract concept is through the use of a concrete symbol. Let me say it again. The best way to teach an abstract concept is through the use of a concrete symbol. Therefore, what Paul is trying to teach is not the value of specific, real articles of armor, but that the armor symbolizes something a little harder to get to. It's an external object that's symbolizing an internal quality. I mean, in this passage here, the breastplate and the helmet symbolize faith and love and hope. You got it? So, some of you, I know you have a blank page in your bulletin. You're dying to take some notes. You got nothing to write down yet other than what do you want for lunch and when will this guy be over? So let me give you some stuff to write down, okay? Point number one, encouraging people dwell on internals over externals. Encouraging people dwell on internals over externals. It's more about the faith, the love, and the hope than it is the breastplate and the helmet. Those are great symbols, but they are external symbols. What's more important is what's going on inside. So in my mind, this translates into a 21st century culture as, hey, that means I want to accent, for example, integrity over prosperity. Integrity over prosperity. Now, is there anything wrong with prosperity? Absolutely not. Here I am, Lord, send me. Okay? The issue is, do you gain your prosperity through means of integrity or do you cut corners and do shady deals and, you know, uh, cheat people? I mean, if you have prosperity through poor means, let's say, that's a bad deal. Integrity and internal quality is much more important than prosperity. And again, you got to understand me here. I'm not saying that one is right and the other is all wrong. I'm saying that we emphasize one over the other. Here's another way to put it. I emphasize attitude over appearance. Attitude over appearance. Now, I'm not saying neglect your appearance. This isn't a plea to go out and get ugly for God. You know, I live in Newport Beach. This is Scottsdale. This is, there's a lot of beautiful people in both of our towns, okay? And I don't know most of them, but I tell that by just looking at them. Their outward appearance says this is a beautiful person. But the real beauty is on the inside, right? That it's the attitude inside. I get the best example that I can tell you. Many years ago, um, we have five children. We have a daughter and four sons. Many years ago, uh, my wife's grandfather and grandmother celebrated their 75th wedding anniversary and wanted us to come and join the festivities. We took everybody to the Midwest. I mean, this was a Norman Rockwell painting come to life. Uh, it was in a little country church. It was celebrated in the church basement. It was a potluck cover dish dinner to celebrate who we knew as Mimi and Gramps, okay? And I remember we were there, and, and Mimi had a brand new dress, and bless her heart, 
She had on top of it one of those ruffly aprons. She couldn't see life without an apron, but it was brand new and the ruffles were just beautiful and everything. And Gramps, Gramps went all out. Brand new pair of bib overalls. (laughs) So I, Gramps and the four boys and I are over by the gospel punch at uh, one corner of the, uh, of the church basement, and Mimi comes in on the door on the other side of the room, and Gramps sees Mimi. He looks at my boys, and he winks, and he goes, that woman still does it for me. I mean, is that glorious or what? They're like in their 90s or like 150 or something, you know? And I thought, oh, this is beautiful. I hope my boys are getting this. Well, they got it. And they're all like, dead, dead. So we're taking a walk away from Gramps. And my boys are like, dead. Did you hear that? I said, yeah, that was beautiful. Dad, Gramps, is he, uh, is he okay? What? I mean, how's the vision? Is he seeing okay? Are the eyes going? His eyes are fine. How about the head? Is is he thinking clearly? I said, you boys, you don't get it. She is the most beautiful woman in the room to him because all about what's on the inside, not on the outside. I mean, it was the perfect example. The only, well, but it was to no avail. I mean, to this day, I got to tell you, none of my sons ever, um, you know, married an elderly Christian woman who was godly. Uh, on the inside. They just didn't get it. They all married these beautiful young women. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. It's all about what's on the inside more than on the outside. Encouraging people dwell on the internals over externals. Look at verses 9 and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. This is the message of the gospel. Paul is essentially saying in this text, if we were given what we deserve, this text describes it as wrath. Other places it's called hell, damnation, separation from God. The beauty is we didn't get what we deserved, we got what we didn't deserve. Because the message of the gospel is not due, the message of the gospel is done. Jesus did everything necessary for you and I to have a relationship with him. And if we accept him by faith, we will be born into the family of God. It's an act of God's grace. So there's a second thing to write down. Number one, uh, encouraging people dwell on internals over externals. Number two, encouraging people dwell on grace over works. Grace over works. Uh, Maybe another way to put it is that encouraging people dwell on acceptance over accomplishment or unconditional over conditional. Now, this always strikes me right to the heart of where we live, and that's family life. And many of us try to figure out how this works with our kids because many of us did not get this message from our parents. We got a very confused message that, that, that confused acceptance and accomplishment. Let me tell you how I like to think of it these days. Um, I've, I've traveled full-time for so many years, and there were so many painful separations, but there was the glorious reunion when I would come back home, and, our, and we're big huggers, and so we'd always talk about, hey, give me a big bear hug, and we would do this to uh, create the delightful family phrase, dad, squeeze my guts out. <laughs> 
But we, and you, to do that, you need a good, solid, two-armed hug. Not a polite, I'm just meeting you, how are you? You need a, okay? Two arms. The arm of acceptance and the arm of approval. Acceptance and approval. Acceptance is unconditional. Son, daughter, wife, father, you can't do anything to make me love you any less or anything to make you love me anymore. It's, it's the love of Jesus. It is unconditional. The arm of approval says we have certain rules, guidelines, whatever you want to call it, laws, uh, ways to avoid felonies and misdemeanors, however you want to code it in your house, that we expect you to abide by. If you don't, I do not approve of that. That doesn't mean that I don't love you. I still love you, but you've got to follow the rules. And when people understand that, they see the difference. You would not allow your two-year-old, for example, oh, he loves to go out and play with the trucks on the interstate. You'd say, wait a minute, I don't approve of that and because I love you. I mean, rules are not unloving, they're just the opposite. And that goes, you know, we're not going to have drugs in the house. And, you know, you're 49 now. It's time to think about moving out. And, you know, all, all the rules, it's not because we don't love them. We do love them, but we have things that are right and wrong. And we embrace those. A two-armed bear hug. That's the message of grace. That they never misunderstand. That's a hard thing you said to me, Dad. But I, I know you love me. And I know how hard that must be. Okay. Now, when we go down to verse 11, we get to, quote-unquote, the bottom line of this thing. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another. The therefore relates to all that has been exposed in the beginning of the paragraph, the 10 verses. We've looked at the last few, but let me just tell you what the first few verses are about, and you can read them on your own. If you like the study of things that are yet ahead— end times, prophecy. You know that the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 5 is the uh, discussion of an event that is still in the future for us. It, it's a period of time called the day of the Lord, a period of judgment and blessing that is still ahead. I think it's fascinating that he bottom lines a passage of prophecy by saying, therefore, encourage one another. So here's the last thing I'd have you write down. What do we do? Number one, encouraging people dwell on internals over externals. Number two, they dwell on grace over works. Number three, encouraging people dwell on tomorrow over yesterday. They dwell on tomorrow over yesterday. Don't let it escape you that the bottom line of a prophecy passage is encourage one another. Now, there are examples in Scripture where someone talks about history and says, encourage one another. There are times when lessons we have learned from the past can be of encouragement to us. But in this particular text, it's a message about tomorrow. And I think that's so significant because I don't care what your day was like yesterday. It could have been the best Saturday in the whole history of the world, or it could have been the absolute worst. The beauty is tomorrow is an absolute clean slate. You and I have the same amount of time, the same amount of opportunity to do with tomorrow as anybody else. And so we think in terms of tomorrow because that talks about hope over hurt. Hope over hurt. 
Now hear me on this because I am not trying to do some slick, oh, if you have problems, just grow up. That's not what I'm saying. If you hurt today, I know that kind of pain. I've been through that kind of pain. We need to get help to work through our hurt. I have a friend who's a therapist, and he says, you know, there are basically two kinds of people that come for counseling. One kind is the kind who says, I've got problems. I want you to help me work it through. I want to work through it. Then there's this second group. They don't ever really say it this way, but they don't want to work through their problems. They just want to work over their problems. He uses kind of the earthy analogy. They're like a pig. They just like to roll in the mud. They don't ever want to get out and get showered down. They like, yeah, but you don't understand what happened to me as a child. There's almost a, a sick pride about it. Yeah, you don't understand, you know, what happened to me when I was eight. You know, and I don't mean to minimize any of that if I'm touching on somebody's story. I'm saying that's real legitimate stuff, and, and you need to feel that pain. But you need to move through that hurt to get to the place where you once again have hope in your life, okay? It's getting potential over problem. So, Having said that, let me just give you two or three final thoughts to consider that relate back to the three points that you have written down. Here's the first one. What is a commitment I can make that will emphasize my internals over my externals? And be specific. Uh, The thought comes to mind, many of us are trying to stay in shape physically, and there's an hour in the gym every day. Well, if you do an hour in the gym every day, what are you doing for an hour every day to work on the inside? It's a good trade-off, wouldn't you say? Okay. Number two, who do I know that needs to feel unconditional love and acceptance from me in the next few weeks? How can I show it in a very practical way? We are all surrounded by people who desperately need the unconditional love of God that they see humanized by a Christian. And number three, what are the specific steps I can take to deal with the problems so I can get on with the potential God wants me to enjoy? Do I know the name of one person who might be available to help me through this process? That way we can take a Bible message and practically apply it. Not just learn how Paul was encouraging, but how you and I can be encouraging as well as we face the week ahead of us. So let's bow our heads, shall we? Father, thank you for these uh, admonitions this morning. Help all of us be the kind of people who truly wanna be encouragers in our lives. May we be people that lift up that orchestra rather than sending it down to the pit. Bless each and every one of these today, dear Lord. I pray, pray especially for the one who is overwhelmed by hurt and by pain. I pray that you would just wrap your arms around them, give them that bear hug, and help them know they are loved unconditionally by you. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray these things. Amen.